Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Our American culture is defined by paganism. Paganism. According to the Huffington Post, last year paganism is on the rise in America. Now what is paganism? Wiccans, Druids, white witches, all types of mystical spirituality where people go to places like Stonehenge in England or maybe to Manitou Springs here in Colorado and they they do all types of of weird festivals to celebrate their paganism and there's estimated to close to about a million pagans around the world and one of the America's largest pagans group is called Reclaiming. And they gather together once a year to have these festivals where they get drunk, they go into trances, and they practice magic in their paganism. Paganism is on the rise in America. Our American culture is defined by mysticism. One of the most popular books in Christian bookstores right now is written by a Christian mystic. It's called Jesus Calling. It's the most popular book. It's by a woman that supposedly hears from God and writes down exactly what Jesus tells her. And it's the hottest book right now. She says she's gotten these ideas from mystics that she's learned from in the past. You don't have to to, to go into a bookstore to realize that mysticism is on the rise. In Amazon.com, if you go there, there are 275,000 books in the self-help section on mysticism. Oprah Winfrey peddles mysticism. She has a popular teacher called Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle has these online teachings where he's promoting his mysticism to people around the globe. He teaches this. He says, our teaching lies at the transformation of consciousness, a spiritual awakening that is the next step in human evolution. And this awakening consists of transcending our ego-based state of consciousness. I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) But there's a lot of people that are buying into that. Many years ago, back in 2006, the book The Secret came out. The Secret is mysticism. It's a self-help book written by a woman named Rhonda Byrne. It's based on the law of attraction, positive, negative. You can change your way of life by creative thinking. It sold more than 10 million copies. Paganism, mysticism. Our American culture is also defined by materialism. According to a recent study of U.S. household debt. Let me give you the current numbers as of December 2014. These will blow your mind. The average credit card debt in U.S. households is $15,000. Average mortgage debt is $155,000. Average student loan debt, $32,000. In total... American consumers owe $11.74 trillion in debt. That's an increase of 3% from last year. 
882 billion in credit card debt, 8.14 trillion in mortgages, and 1.128 billion in student loans. Our American culture is defined by paganism, it's defined by mysticism, it's defined by materialism, but our American culture is also defined by sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. According to an online internet source called the Internet Filter Review, let me give you some statistics. The average number of pornographic emails received every day is 4.5. Number of pornographic sites on the internet which is approximately 12% of all websites, there's 4.2 million and counting. Daily internet searches for pornographic terms, 68 million. Individual visitors to pornographic websites each month, 72 million. Pornographic emails sent each day, 2.5 billion. Now, when I was growing up back in the 80s, you didn't have the internet. You had to have a friend sneak into 7-Eleven to buy a Playboy. Nowadays... With the click of a mouse or a swipe of a finger, you have access to some of the most graphic material around the world. And our children are being exposed to it at an alarming rate. Paganism, mysticism, materialism, sexual immorality. This is what our culture is defined by. And you may say, why are you bringing this up? Why are you drawing our attention to this, this problem in American culture? And here's why. Things haven't changed that much in the past 2,000 years. The same issues that we face today, the Thessalonians dealt with over 2,000 years ago. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians, they were dealing with many of the same issues that you and I deal with. So this morning, we launch our new sermon series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give a bird's eye view of what this book is about. We're going to dive into this verse by verse over the coming months, but this morning I'm laying a foundation and we're just going to do an overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so I want to do three things this morning. There's three things I want to do. The first thing I want to do is I want to give you an overview of the city. Thessalonica. What was the city like back in Paul's day, the audience to whom he was writing? What was the city of Thessalonica like? Second thing I want to do is I want us to go to Acts 17 and I want us to look at how the church was planted. How did this church start? What were the circumstances under which the church started? And then number three, I want to give you the thesis of the entire book, and then I want to give you an outline of the book. So, so this is not going to be as much of a, of a verse by verse. This is a bird's eye view of the book as we dive into 1 Thessalonians. So let's first of all explore an overview of Thessalonica, the city. The city of Thessalonica. It was a strategic city in Paul's day. It was the most important city in that area. It was the seat of the Roman provincial government in that area. It was located in Macedonia. Now you may say, what's the big deal about Macedonia? The big deal about Macedonia is this. Thessalonica was where Alexander the Great started his empire. Just in the 300s B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the known world and died before the age of 33. And so there's this pride in being from Thessalonica. Thessalonica is the hotbed of Alexander the Great's empire. So fast forward to when Paul visits there in A.D. 50. 
They still have this national pride that we are this great city because we are are sons and daughters of Alexander the Great. It was estimated that the city had over 200,000 people during Paul's day. It was a very important city. It was a strategic city. There were a lot of wealthy merchants that would come in and trade in the city. Now, one of the things we need to understand about the Thessalonica, the city, was that it had strong ties to the Roman Empire. It was the seat of the Roman provincial government. And so what ended up happening there in Thessalonica was emperor worship. Emperor worship. Here's what emperor worship would look like if you were a citizen of Thessalonica. You would come to one of the temples of the emperor and you would drop a pinch of incense in the altar and you would swear allegiance to Caesar as your God and your Lord and your Savior. That would be a problem if you're a Christian to pledge allegiance to a, a human leader as your Lord and your God and your Savior. And so this was the hotbed of, of Roman Empire emperor worship in this very strategic city. But not only was it a very wealthy city, a very populous city of 200,000 people, a very important Roman city, this was a city that also had a multiplicity of gods and goddesses. There was a plurality of mystical religions of gods and goddesses. The most famous goddess in Thessalonica was Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, sex, and fertility. There were some archaeological digs that were done during that time. And these archaeological excavations found these little statues of Aphrodite. And it was probably believed that these statues were in almost everybody's home where they worshipped this goddess of sex in their homes. They also found them in cemeteries believed to be buried with people as they died. So Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, fertility, and sex, was the most popular goddess. Who was the most popular god in Thessalonica? Dionysius, Bacchus, the god of alcohol, drunkenness, and orgies. You see, in Thessalonica, you would go to a temple prostitute and have sex with that temple prostitute, and that was part of your religion, and you would get drunk at orgies. There's something in my notes that I elected not to share because of the graphic nature of it this morning, so if you want to find out after the service, you can read my manuscript. There's another thing that's important in Thessalonica, but I felt like it's, it's probably too PG-13 to mention. Let's just say this. This was a city steeped and sexual immorality. And not only that, they were enamored with Egyptian mythology. Egyptian mythology and astrology. So think about the weird combination of this city. You've got emperor worship. You've got Dionysius, the god of orgies and drunkenness. You've got Aphrodite, the god of love and sex. And you've got these Egyptian mythologies all coming together to create this melting pot of weird religion in Thessalonica. Now, it sounds eerily similar to our culture today. We don't have emperor worship, and we don't have temple prostitutes, but we have pornography And we have substance abuse and we have weird spiritualities and mystical religions in our culture. And here's the thing. Living in Thessalonica, if you 
wanted to be different, if you truly wanted to live the way God wants you to live, if you were to live as a Christian, you're going to get opposition. You're going to receive hardship. You're going to receive, you're going to receive persecution. And that's what we're going to see in just a moment. If you want to live differently, if you want to live as a Christian in this culture, expect opposition. If you look just like the culture around you, and you're immersed with the culture around you, and you look like everybody else, and you're not receiving any opposition or any conflict, and and you're just kind of swimming in the ebb and the flow of the culture around you, you need to ask a very important question. Am I truly a Christian? Am I truly a Christian? Because being a Christian means you've been saved out of that, and your life is different. Your life is different. So that's the background of the city. It's a weird city. Emperor worship. Sexual immorality, materialism, paganism, mysticism, Egyptian astrology, all this coming together. So what I want us to do secondly is I want us to look at Paul's visit and the planting of the church there. What did Paul do when he planted the church? Let's look at Acts chapter 17. This is, this is Paul's second missionary journey. And there's a lot leading up to his visit to Thessalonica. And you can go back and read that in Acts chapter 16. But let's just pick up in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, and let's find out how this church was birthed, how this church was planted. What were the circumstances behind the planting of the church in Thessalonica? Let's pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. If you remember a few years ago, and you probably don't, when we went through the book of Acts, and I encourage you to go back and just kind of read that if you're going through our Bible reading program or reading through Acts right now. Paul had a missionary method when he would go to a new town. When Paul would go to a strategic town, when Paul would go to a town, the first place he would go is the synagogue, which is the Jewish church. And as he goes to the synagogue, he wants to get a hearing from the Jews first because he's got common ground. They believe the Old Testament. They understand who God is. He doesn't, he's not dealing with pagans who have no background. He goes to the Jewish synagogue. And that's exactly what he does here. And what he does here is it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. 
Paul is going to take the Old Testament scriptures because the New Testament has not been written at this time and he's going to explain and reason with these Jews about who Jesus is from the scriptures. Now, the word reason is an interesting word. It really means to dialogue, to have a conversation. It wasn't like a monologue where I stand up and speak to you and you can't speak back. It may be very frustrating for some of you when I preach. I can't talk back. I have to listen. That's not what's going on here with Paul. What Paul was probably doing was small group Bible study. He's probably in the synagogue and he's, he's explaining the text. and he's, There's a give and take. There's a question. There's an answering. There's a dialogue going on here between him and these religious leaders in the synagogue. And he would probably read his Old Testament, stop and explain it, and, and then show how it related to Christ, and then ask questions and have them answer questions. And, and really, the word explaining there, verse 3, he explained. It really means to open up the text, to expose the text, to do what's called expository teaching. That's what I do every Sunday pretty much. Expository preaching and teaching. Expository preaching basically means you expose, you open up what's there in the scripture and you teach it. You, you go deep into it. And that's what Paul was doing. He was, he was reasoning with them. He was, he was explaining to them exactly what the Scripture meant. And that's exactly what Jesus did. you realize that Jesus was an expository teacher? When he rose from the dead and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with those disciples, listen to what Luke says Jesus did with the Scriptures. In Luke 24, 44 through 47, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's, that's the whole Old Testament, the Moses, prophets, and Psalms. Then, verse 45, I love, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures? And He said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So that's what Paul's doing. He's, he's taking and explaining and reasoning with the Old Testament to these Jews who aren't quite sure who Jesus is. And the second thing it says there in verse 3 that He's proving. He's proving. Literally in the Greek text, it meant that he was placing it side by side. So here's what I think Paul did, side by side. I think Paul took an Old Testament passage, probably, let's say, Genesis 22, where Abraham's about ready to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, and he explains that text. And then he goes and says, that's what Jesus is a picture of that. Or he goes to Isaiah 53 and talks about how he bore our transgressions. And and so he goes to the Old Testament and then he goes to Jesus. He goes to the Old Testament and he goes to Jesus in this explanation. And then he just focuses on Jesus. He he says, listen, here's my message to you. I'm going to expose the text. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to explain to you. And this is what he says there in verse 3. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. So he talks about the death of Christ. I'm teaching to you the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Number two, the the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So it's a very simple message, Paul says. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus is king. He's He's the Messiah. He's the promised, anointed Messiah. That's what he's doing. And so he's he's painstakingly exposing these Jews in the synagogue to the scriptures about Jesus. And what's the response? There's not a huge response from the Jewish people. 
It says that some were persuaded. Look there in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So how was this church started? Gentiles and these leading women. We don't know who these leading women are. But it says not a few of them. So there's a lot of these leading women and these Gentiles believe Paul's message and that's how the church was planted. But what does it say about the Jews? Look there in verse 5. The Jews were jealous and they took some wicked men. Literally, the the text there in Greek says the lowlives. Some guys sitting around the marketplace with nothing better to do and said, Hey guys, let's go start a mob. That sounds like something fun to do. Let's go start a riot. So they go start a riot, a mob riot, and they're looking for Paul and Silas. And they go and they ransack this guy Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas. And it becomes so much of an uproar that what do Paul and Silas have to do? They have to hightail it out of Thessalonica and go down to Berea. Now, how many days was Paul in Thessalonica? There's a clue from your text. Notice what it says there in verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned. Paul was only there for three weeks until he had to hightail it out of there because the the church was birthed in an uproar. So the church was really birthed after three weeks of Paul's teaching. So we've got to ask ourselves a question. This is a fledgling, immature baby church where Paul, it's not like Corinth where Paul spent a year and a half there. It's not like Ephesus where Paul spent three years there. He spent three weeks there and had to leave. So, and this church was birthed in persecution, in struggle. And Acts doesn't give us information. I wish it did. There's a lot of questions I have, but Acts just doesn't give me the information. And so here's some questions I have. Okay, Paul, in those three weeks, did you raise up pastors and elders to leave the church? To lead the church. The Bible doesn't say. Another question I have. Okay, Paul, is three weeks really enough time to disciple a small group of people and leave them on their own to be a church? Three weeks. There you go. There's your church. Another question. How are these people going to stick together? What's going to keep them together in the midst of all of this persecution, in the midst of all this paganism, in the midst of all of this culture of Thessalonica? How are they going to stay together as a church? Those are great questions that Acts doesn't really answer. All we know is that Paul has to leave this baby church and he and Silas have to hightail it down to Berea because they're searching for him. So this church is birthed under duress. Persecution, mob riot. Paul was only there three weeks. He has to leave quickly. And so the question is, okay, why did Paul write 1 Thessalonians? Well, you can understand why Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. He was only there three weeks. He had to leave quickly. And so here's what he did. He leaves from first he leaves from Thessalonica and goes to Berea. Has the same problem in Berea. Almost gets kicked out of Berea. Then he goes to Athens. And it's there that he preaches on Mars Hill and and deals with the philosophers, doesn't have a lot of success in Athens. Then he goes to Corinth. And Paul gets to settle down in Corinth. Things settle down in Corinth. He has a good ministry in Corinth. He's there for about a year and a half. And so most scholars believe that around A.D. 51, when he's in Corinth, when things have settled down, Paul has time to write back to this fledgling church 
and to encourage them. The church that he was only there for three weeks, a church that was birthed in the midst of a mob riot where they're ransacking this guy Jason's house to try to find Paul and Silas. So most scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians is Paul's second letter he wrote. Galatians is the first, so this is an early letter. And so Paul is writing back to this immature, fledgling, struggling church that was birthed in the midst of persecution. And that's why he writes 1 Thessalonians. So what I'd like for us to do is now to turn to 1 Thessalonians. As we will be here over the next few months. You've got the background of the city. Paganism. Mysticism. Emperor worship. Materialism. You got how the church was planted. Paul goes there and he's only there for three weeks and he reasons in the synagogue and then there's a mob riot and he has to leave and this church is birthed as a fledgling, small baby church without Paul really there to to establish much. So the third thing I want us to do this morning is I really just want us to explore the thesis of the book and the major themes. Every single book of the Bible has one main teaching. One main thesis, one big idea that that, that unifies the entire book, what the entire book's about. So let me give to you what the book of 1 Thessalonians is about, and we'll see this unfold over the next coming months. Here's the thesis, here's the big theme of 1 Thessalonians. It's simply this. God is faithful to sanctify and sustain His people until the second coming through the power of the gospel. God is faithful to sanctify and sustain His people until the second coming through the power of the gospel. One of the key words that shows up over and over again in 1 Thessalonians is the word gospel. It shows up six times. Another key word that shows up is God is faithful to sustain. God is faithful to sanctify. Now what does it mean that God will sanctify and sustain? It simply means this. God will make sure that you as a Christian will grow. God is faithful to make sure that you will grow to be more like Christ. God is faithful to make sure that you will experience the fullness of what He has for you, that you will finish the race, that you will become more holy, that God will sanctify you, that God will sustain you, that God will be there with you until when? Well, if you die first or the second coming. Do we know when the second coming is going to happen? No. So we are end times people. When did the end times start? Well, when Jesus went back up to heaven. We're in the end times now. And we're closer than we were 2,000 years ago. And how's God going to do this? How's God going to be faithful to sustain us? How's God going to be faithful to get us through? How's God going to be faithful to grow us through the power of the gospel? This entire book is about the power of the gospel for everyday life. So what I want us to do here in the brief time that we have left is I want to give you an overview. I've never done this really as we've preached a book, but I think it's important because Third Thessalonians is a small book. I want to just give you an overview, an outline. What's this book about? Big picture. There are seven major themes, seven major sections in the book of First Thessalonians. Now, we're going to dive into these like as we go verse by verse, and we're going to break this down into smaller parts. But again, I'm just giving you a bird's eye view. But, but basically... What Paul's main theme is, is he's giving thanks for God's work of the gospel in this church. He starts with, this whole whole letter is almost just a letter of thanksgiving. 
of God's work in their lives through the power of the gospel. So I want to ask you a question before we even start this journey. How truly thankful are you for your salvation? Most of us would say, I'm very thankful for my salvation. But let me ask you a deeper question. How many of you are truly thankful for God's work of grace in the other believers and Christians in your life and in your church family? You see, one of the terms that Paul's going to use over and over again is brothers. He's using family language here. And Paul is so thankful for God's grace in the gospel in his church family. Are you thankful for God's work of grace in others in your church family? You cannot answer that question unless you know others in your church family well enough to see evidence of God's grace in their lives. That's the real key. To be truly thankful for what God's doing in other brothers and sisters, you've got to know them well enough. You've got to be in their lives. You've got to be united together as a church. So do you see yourself as part of a church family? Or do you see yourself as a disconnected bystander who's just kind of watching things progress, but you're on the outside looking in? My hope and prayer over these next few months is that that through this study, we would be united as a church family. We'd see ourselves as brothers and sisters. We'd come together and be thankful for God's work of grace, not only in our lives, but in each other's lives. And we'd get to know each other better as as we live out the implications of the gospel. So let's look at these seven themes. Theme number one. The power of the gospel produces salvation. This is in chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. So in chapter 1, 2 through 10, this is section 1. In these opening verses, Paul's just going to talk about how the gospel came to the Thessalonians, how God saved them out of their pagan idolatry, how God just brought the gospel to them in power. So let's just read verses 4 and 5. We'll come back to these verses, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I'm just giving you a big picture here. So, so verses 4 and 5, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. And then go down and look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living And true God. Theme number one. The power of the gospel produces salvation. Have you experienced this power? Has the gospel come to you in power and the Holy Spirit in full conviction? We're going to talk about that next week. Has the gospel come to you in power? Have you turned from your idols to serve the living and true God? That's theme number one in 1 Thessalonians. Let's look at theme number two. We find this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Pretty much all of, all of chapter 2. The power of the gospel produces faithful service. Paul's going to give thanks here for his short three-week ministry stint in Thessalonica. And he's going to thank God that even though he was there for three weeks, it produced effective fruit. His ministry was fruitful. Let's just look at verses 11 and 12. Chapter 2, 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul uses this this language, I was like a father to you. 
And I encouraged you. And I motivated you. And I came alongside you. And I'm so thankful that God is continuing to grow that in you. And just like a father is proud of his children, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what God has done in you. And so here's a question you need to ask. Are you thankful for those leaders that God has placed in your life? whether it's a growth group leader or whether it's a spiritual mentor or a pastor or a teacher, those, those people in your life that God has given you, are you thankful for them that God has used them to encourage you in your growth, to exhort you in your growth, to help you in your path of growth? Are you thankful the way Paul is for what God has done in producing fruit? Theme number three. This is the first half of, verse, of chapter, um, actually pretty much all of chapter 13. I mean chapter 3. Theme number three, the power of the gospel promises endurance during affliction and suffering. How was this church started? In the midst of a mob riot. Paul sends Timothy back to check upon this fledgling church. And as Timothy goes and looks at the church, he realizes, man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of persecution going on here, there's a lot of affliction. And he goes back and reports to Paul that they're dealing with a lot of affliction, a lot of persecution a lot of intense time of suffering. And so look at, look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Therefore we could, not bear it. we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. That you would not be moved by these afflictions. Then go look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. May the Lord establish. The the word used here in this section is establish. May the Lord establish you. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, may the Lord God establish you. And that word establish really means to help someone be stronger, to be firm, to be unchanging. May God make you firm. May God make you settled. May God give you the encouragement, the strength to handle whatever comes your way. That's what chapter 3 is all about. The power of the gospel produces endurance. So here's a question. Are you thankful? Are you thankful? This is weird. I know. Are you thankful for the afflictions in your life? Are you thankful for the sufferings in your life? Are you thankful for the hardships in your life? Are you thankful for those because those are God's tools to grow you to be more like Jesus? And the Bible says to be thankful in all things. So are you thankful even in your persecution, in your afflictions, in your trials? Is God's means of growing you to be more like Jesus. Okay, theme number four. The power of the gospel produces sexual purity. This is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul is going to address sexual purity. Let's look at verses 3 and 5. Chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. You don't have any question here about God's will is. He tells you straight up, this is the will of God. I want to know what God's will is. Here's the will of God. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, when I explained to you the city of 1 Thessalonians, the city of Thessalonica, I explained to you that city. Now do you think it's important that Paul is going to address sexual purity? What are these people coming out of? 
temple prostitution, pagan worship, Bacchus, Dionysius, orgies, drunkenness, all this weird type of sexual morality. They're coming out of that, and Paul's got to address the issue. So the gospel produces sexual purity. And so a question I ask you as we start this study is, are you trusting in the power of the gospel to help you remain sexually pure? We live in a sex-crazed culture. It's all around us. You cannot avoid it. The only way you're going to be able to withstand sexual temptation is through the power of the gospel and what God gives you in His grace to sustain you. So that's what we're going to be looking at as one of the themes as we go through 1 Thessalonians. Theme number five. The power of the gospel produces brotherly love, which results in being an effective witness. Verses 9 through 12. Let's just read that. Verses 9 through 11. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What Paul is saying there is that, listen, church, you're a witness to outsiders. You're a witness to the watching world. And one of the, the most effective ways that you're a witness to the watching world is how you love one another. In your brotherly love, the way that you love one another is how you you show a positive witness to the world around you. It's exactly what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Question, are you showing brotherly love? Do you love other people in such a way that it promotes a positive witness to a watching world about the power of the gospel? Theme number six, and this is the one everybody wants to get to, but we have to wait. The power of the gospel produces the ability to encourage one another in the hope of the second coming. Yes, the second coming is a huge section in Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, probably one of the largest passages. And we've got the famous passage there in 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Go down to chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. The the, the teaching on the second coming is important. But twice in the teaching on the second coming, Paul says the reason I'm giving this to you is to help you to encourage one another. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you are so tempted just to throw in the towel on this Christianity thing? How many of you are so tempted to look around and say, you know what, this world is getting so bad, I just wish Jesus would come back and take me out of this. Those are legitimate feelings that we have. And sometimes we're tempted just to to, to throw in the towel, we're tempted to give in, we're just tempted to walk away. And what Paul says is, listen, Jesus is coming back. He's not come back yet. We've got to be patient. And as we're patiently awaiting the second coming, let's encourage one another. Let's encourage one another. So one of the main thrusts of the book of of Thessalonians is encouraging one another. Brotherly love. Let's encourage one another. Let's love one another. Let's spur one another on. When was the last time you encouraged someone? Demonstrably, tangibly in their faith. And when was the last time you were encouraged by another believer? Here's the last theme. This is chapter 5. Verses 12 through 28, through the end of the, through the, end of the scriptures, the end of the, the, the book. 
The power of the gospel produces the fruit of authentic fellowship and community as a church family. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Get along. Be a fellowship. Be a community. Be, be unified. Be at peace. Paul's going to get real practical here what that looks like. How does it look like to, to get along as a church family? And then, 21, then verse um, 23. I think verse 23 is the thesis. He kind of waits till the very end to wrap it all together. And, and this is, I think, the thesis of Paul's of Paul's entire book. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God will do it. He's faithful to do it. That's the ultimate promise. What is the theme of the book again? Let me give you the theme. Now you can see the theme. God is faithful. What does it say here? God is faithful. He's going to do it. God is faithful to do what? What is God faithful to do? He's faithful to sustain you, to help you grow, to sanctify you, to, to get you encouraged, to, to help you in your spiritual walk, to use others in your Christian life to do that. God is faithful to do that when? Until the second coming. Whether you die first or until Jesus comes back, which means that God's in it for the long haul for your life. How's he going to do it? Through the power of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be the power, the fuel that's going to power everything here. And practical areas of life like sexual purity and areas of brotherly love and areas of the second coming and areas of service, all of these issues, it comes back to God being the one who's faithful. He will do it. What's He going to do? He's going to sustain and sanctify you. When? Until the second coming. How? Through the power of the gospel. So here's my final question to you. Are you ready? To start, First Thessalonians. And hopefully you say yes, because you have no choice. <laughs> Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know this has been more of an overview, but I felt like I had to lay the foundation of where we're going so that you can kind of get a bird's eye view. But maybe one of these issues spoke to you this morning from the Scriptures, and one of these, these topics really hit home. And I just want you to spend some time this morning, asking God to prepare your heart to learn, prepare your heart to be grown, to prepare your heart to be confronted in areas, to prepare your heart to be challenged, to prepare just, just whatever God needs to do through this sermon series to get your heart in a place to be ready, to be obedient and responsive to whatever God's calling you to do. Spend some time now just asking God, God, soften my heart, get my heart ready. I'm I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to, to, to be ready to whatever you challenge me with, whatever you confront me with, whatever you teach me, God, I want to be ready to receive it and I want to be obedient. So just spend some time this morning just asking the Lord to soften your heart and to get your heart ready to do whatever he calls you to do as we spend time in prayer this morning. Father, I'm thankful for that passage of Scripture that says you are faithful. You will surely do it. What a promise, Lord. It doesn't say that you're going to try to do it or that you're going to halfway do it or that you're going to, you're going to give a good attempt. Lord, it says you're going to do it. 
You're going to sanctify us. You're going you're gonna to grow us. You're going you're to sustain us. You're going to get us through the trials. You're going to get us through the issues. You're going to get us through all these things that we face. Lord, you're going to do it if we're truly your children. So, Father, thank you for your faithfulness. And, Lord, as Paul looks at your faithfulness, it, it motivates him to be thankful. And that's what really the book's about is thankfulness. And so, Lord, we want to be a thankful people as we go forward in 2015. May we be thankful, Jesus. Thankful for our salvation, thankful for your work of grace in our lives, but more importantly, Lord, just having an outside look to say, where are evidences of your grace in others, and am I thankful for what you're doing in other people's lives? Do I know other people well enough to be thankful for what you're doing? And and Father, would you just take us on a journey of growing together as a church family? Take us on a journey of, of growing into each other's lives, Lord, as we are in times people waiting for the second coming, would you just knit us together as a church family and and do a work of deep transformation as we go on this journey through 1 Thessalonians. Father, I I, want to be ready for whatever you're going to teach us. I want to be ready and willing and able and and responsive and and soft-hearted. Father, I I just want to be open to what you're going to teach us as a church family. So Lord, help us to all have the attitude of readiness to engage you in your scripture and to be obedient. Father, if there's anybody out there this morning who's never trusted you for salvation, that's never trusted in Jesus Christ as the the king of their life, they've never turned from their idols to serve the living and true God, the the power of the gospel's never come to them, may today be their day of salvation where they turn from their sin, Jesus, and they turn towards you in faith. Would today be their day of salvation because you've opened eyes to see your beauty. May we do all things to your glory because you are faithful and you will surely do it to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.